This is Trep Wire with a special guest podcast. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. Today, we're talking to Warren DeHaan, co-founder, managing partner, and co-CEO of private lender Acor Capital, one of the largest credit managers focused on commercial real estate lending with more than $21 billion of assets under management. Warren, welcome, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your firm and your background? Sure. Acor Capital is a company we formed about seven years ago. We are one of the largest non-bank commercial real estate lenders in the United States. We focus on making transitional loans ranging 40 million to north of 300 million across all property types. We have about 120 people in five offices around the country. We're very active even in today's choppy markets. So we look forward to getting to some of that with you. So when we first had our prep call several weeks ago, it was a little bit of a different backdrop. A lot has happened in those weeks. Let's dive into a little bit of what you're seeing and and what your impressions are. So the banking liquidity crisis has made lending in CRE a lot more difficult, given that it already had some challenges with rising interest rates. What's your read on what's currently happening? Well, certainly, if you go back about 30, 45 days ago, The concerns were, A, was this a liquidity problem, broadly speaking, or B, was this a credit problem in effectively issues at the asset level, intrinsic asset level. And so with every situation we were looking at in our portfolio of $21 billion, we're assessing the risks to liquidity, i.e., does the borrower have capital to solve a maturity default? Do they have an ability to meet certain covenants under our loan? Or secondly, is this a credit-related issue as we're seeing starting to emerge in the office sector per se? And that's what we occupied ourselves with predominantly. This banking crisis, if you will, came out of left field. What we knew with the Fed was that I think many of us had learned that you don't bet against the Fed and the Fed has been pretty dogmatic about their direction. And their words are very specific that they were going to maintain their their tightening policy until such time as they saw a clear path to inflation around 2% or fundamentally if something broke. And that added part is what I'm adding in there. Well, something broke. It was unexpected and it broke and it broke big. I mean, orders of magnitude is are, are pretty large. I mean, the regional banking system provides about 70 to 72% of all loans to the United States. Put that in context again, if you're a farmer wanting to buy a tractor, as an example, you're not going to Bank of America or JP Morgan to borrow the money. You're going to your local thrift or your local bank to borrow the money. So this shock to the system was severe. The run on the bank happens very quickly, as we saw. And it fundamentally comes down to the mismatch between the liabilities, the deposits, and the asset side of the balance sheet. And also the methodology that has been laid out by the OCC for the banking industry, which is the way in which they mark to market or don't mark to market their assets. So if a bank has a 3% loan, five-year or seven or 10-year arm, today that loan is probably 6%. So mark to market, there's a, there's a big loss embedded in it. Secondly, is there's a lot of fear in the market at the, at the retail, at the consumer level, brought on by the press. And hence a run on the banks. So there's sort of two sort of thoughts around this idea of banking and the banking bailout and the Fed coming in to backstop the deposits. One is 
that the consumer should be smart enough to invest their money in a bank where, where they believe that that is a good investment. In other words, if it's greater than $250,000 and it's not FDIC insured, the consumer should be left to their own devices to make that decision. The other school of thought is, much like food, water, shelter, your savings is very high up on the list of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it should be safe. And that is the current debate. So as it relates to commercial real estate as a, an asset class, commercial real estate debt as an asset class, and I think all of us are reading, anybody who's got a pen to write or a voice today is talking about the problems in the commercial real estate lending or mortgage market, including Elon Musk is a pint on this, of course. But if you put it in numbers, there's about $4.4 trillion in commercial debt outstanding. About 38% of that is held within the banks. So call it $1.7 trillion. There's about $2.5 trillion of debt coming due in the next five years. So, you know, as we sit back and we think about this, the real question that, that I'm wrestling with is what's really going to happen here? In the banking market, sitting on, call it $1.7 trillion of mortgages, many of which are coming due over the next five years, what will the banks do? Will the banks be able to modify those loans freely? Likely not, given regulatory framework, given capital charges and so on. And then what do the banks do? Secondly, with this influx of deposits from the regional banks into the large national banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citi and so on, and Wells and so on, what will those banks do with the additional deposits? Will they then stimulate lending? Will they put the money back out there again? Or will they hoard the cash? So we have this giant need for commercial real estate debt coming up over the next five years. And we have a back banking system which is problematic right now and from a liquidity perspective is not providing the liquidity in the markets that the market needs. And so the potential solutions to that, it's a big question mark as to how this is going to play out. So there's more here, I think, that we don't know than we do know. Clearly, we need an operating regional banking, banking market. So the Fed has stepped in and provided this backstop, so call it the Fed window, where banks can come and pledge collateral at par to the Fed, and the Fed will provide liquidity. My view on that is that is kind of like a Band-Aid, uh, and that will help us for the short term, really will help us in, in a sizable way in the short term. But really, in order for all of us to get back to normal in any meaningful way, we need the Band-Aid as step one, but step two is we really need an operating banking market. And one of the ways you can get there is clearly the interest rate issue and the Fed loosening monetary policy, bringing interest rates down and minimizing, if you will, this issue of mark to market in the regional banking system. So those bank, banks are now solvent and those banks also are able to liquidate some of these longer dated assets to, to satisfy their liabilities. Warren, thanks so much for that, that setting of the stage of where we are today. I wasn't going to go there, but now that you've brought it up, I'm going to throw out the $64,000 question, which is, what do you feel about deposit insurance? You talked about the $250,000 limit. You talked about the steps being taken thus far being abandoned. Do you have a strong opinion on that? I wouldn't say a strong opinion. I do have an opinion. You know, there are many, many, many people in the United States that have $250,000 or more in savings. The idea of 
sprinkling it around to multiple banks is not necessarily intuitive. I think the idea and the perception with, in the consumer's mind is when I go to my bank and I shake my banker's hand and I give them my paycheck, that that paycheck is in fact safe. Th that I think is a basic need to have a safe place that is easily understood to put your money. That's my personal opinion. I know there are contrary opinions that would say that it's up to the consumer to figure out how to manage their own risk. But I just think that really, as I said, savings is like, is like food, water, shelter. And we need to come up with something that satisfies the consumer in this regard. Well, turning to the commercial real estate segment that you were referring to before, the thesis is right now uh, around the, the US that the markets are constrained. Right. We have two major sources of capital for the non-apartment portion of the CRE market, and that's CMBS, which because of the volatility has largely shut down. And the bigger segment, of course, is the banking system, which you put at about 70% of all lending. Is the constraint in your mind at this point in theory, or have you actually seen constraints now where people are not able to tap capital? in the current environment because banks are squirreling away funds? This is a very real issue, I, I think. And there is a fairly well understood FASB credit loss accounting standard called CECL, C-E-C-L. In, in simple terms, CECL is the, the, the accounting measure by which the financial institutions will calculate expected losses. I think it's a very healthy measurement. I think it's a good universal measurement for, for lenders to use. But in, in a recent discussion with the chairman of a regional bank, you know, one of the comments was, look, Warren, we'd love to lend. We think this is a fantastic environment to lend in from a lender perspective, but our liquidity is constrained. And this was pre the run on the, on the banks. And the liquidity was constrained for a couple of reasons. One is given that treasury yields had risen so much, deposits were being taken out of the banks and, and consumers were investing them in treasuries. And the second issue is really the methodology, it's boardroom driven, how the board of these banks were looking at credits. So it's regulatory framework as well as how to run a business. And because of the characterization of loans, so for example, when interest rates rose, more loans had debt service coverage ratios that were less than 1.0, moving them into a different risk-based capital category. And when that happens, more of the bank's capital needs to be used against that particular collateral. So this issue with the banks pre what happened two weeks ago was a very real issue. And I think uniformly we were feeling it. The second point that you mentioned was the CMBS market. Similarly, in the CMBS market, the bond buyers as the lifeblood of the CMBS market have been sitting on the sideline by and large, the big buyers. Why is that? Well, when we're in an environment where there is no rate stability, now rates can trade within a range and a high range, that's okay for a bond buyer. But it's when rates continue to ratchet up, you have this inverse relationship between the value of a bond and its yield rate. And so as yield rates went up, the value of those bonds went down and therefore losses were incurred. So as bond buyers, they were more concerned. I'm hopeful that we'll reach through this process an interest rate pattern, whether it's cutting off rates 
or stability in interest rates that would then give the bond buyers enough confidence to say, hey, we need yield and we feel like there's a stable interest rate environment and they will then emerge back into the CMBS market in a large scale. And in so doing, help get some of the loans off of the bank's balance sheets into the securitized market and free up more capital in the banking system to put into new loans. Yeah, thank you, Warren. And I wanted to echo Mana's sentiment. Really refreshing. You can tell you're in the weeds with this stuff every day. So we appreciate your perspective on the podcast today. So a couple of questions for me. I know your firm, when it came to like troubled assets during COVID with the hotel sector, as an example, you guys really stepped in when some of those loans and operators were in trouble, provided additional extension. You know, when they weren't able to extend or refinance, you guys provided some rescue capital and some other opportunities. Are you viewing this crisis in a similar vein where maybe for lenders that can get creative, that can provide a stopgap until maybe the market resets itself or we see some activity from the Fed in the form of a pivot or stabilization? of rates, et cetera. What's your perspective on that? Maybe relating it back to what you saw during COVID and the disruption in the markets in that time frame. You know, COVID was an interesting time. It, it felt to me, the analogy I use is there was an athlete, very strong athlete that had a heart attack, went in for heart surgery, came out and recovered really quickly. In this case, it feels more like you had a smoker going in as a heart attack and the outcome is there's a broad distribution of outcomes. When we started ACOR, we always started ACOR with the perspective that money is green, there's a lot of competition, and that we needed to provide a product for the borrowers where there was a deep degree of trust, there was a high degree of repeat business, and we wanted to offer, from an asset management perspective, a white glove service so that we would get higher repeat business, we would be able to use that as a weapon to win more business offensively, but also defensively provide instant feedback to our investors. So we built out a big asset management team. Well, when COVID hit, we were extremely grateful that we had done that. And you know, our borrowers, these are friends of ours, people that we've done business with for 30 years. And they would call up and say, look, it's not our fault. You know, we, we did everything and it's true. They did everything they said they were gonna do, but this episodic event happens. So we worked with our borrowers, either giving them some degree of forbearance or interest deferral, in exchange for a couple of things and gave them time to get through the problem. And by and large, that worked. The second thing that we did at the time is that we formed a hospitality rescue vehicle, which was really designed to solve this liquidity hole that, that occurred during COVID where borrowers were just out of money. And so we provided money at the appropriate yield rate against assets that we believed had good rebound characteristics. So that was very successful. Fast forward to where we are today. The issues by and large are deeper and more long lasting. So it's both a deep and a broad issue, right? And we haven't even started to talk about issues associated with the office sector yet. But I think different lenders are gonna act in different ways. As I said, I'm not sure how the banks are gonna to react to this. My intuition with the big banks like B of A, Wells Fargo and others is they should be leaning into repo warehouse lending more than they ever have, which will help out the rest of the non-bank ecosystem to create more liquidity. And they can put that out money out in an extremely safe way. So that's what I'm hoping will happen. We'll have to wait and see. The non-bank sector is, is again, chopped up to, into various sectors. There's folks like us that the majority of our capital comes from the insurance company industry, and that's long dated capital that's fully funded. 
I don't have margin issues or otherwise, and it's very patient. So I'm very grateful we have a lot of that capital. There are also, we're also in the fund business and in the fund business, we're matched term financed. So we have less issues in that sector as a number of our competitors are similarly structured. You then have a number of lenders that borrowed through the CLO market that, that are in a position where they're unable to go and issue new debt against their positions. And they're going to land up having issues where their asset yields, while they're good loans, are going to be reduced to very low levels and cause a lot of problems for them raising capital going forward. My guess is that some of those lenders will just vaporize and, and stop existing. In the mortgage REIT sector, the mortgage REIT has some phenomenal lenders and very prominent sources of capital, but they too have issues because their stock prices are trading inside a book. They can't raise more capital. Their capital is needed for future funding obligations. And the unsecured debt market is really not there for them right now. So we're going to see them sit on the sidelines too. So behavior is one thing. I do believe that our competitors today are by and large very good lenders. They will look for ways to work with their borrowers like we will. There's a big question mark around the banks, how, how they, they're going to act. I think they will act well, but I'm just not sure yet how they're going to act. And then there are a number of other lenders that mismatched assets and liabilities that I think are going to vaporize. So you brought up the terms offense and defense. It sounds like your capital structure is such that this could be a very exciting time for you. You could really play offense given that you don't have a funding problem right now. You don't have an asset liability mismatch. A lot of the sources of capital that your competitors have been tapping is constrained. This might be a uh, the salad days for you. Is that uh, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah, I, look, I... I... We, this is 30 some years in this industry. We've built four of these businesses so far. I would tell you that I think this is the, if you were to line up businesses that you would want to be in, being a commercial real estate mortgage lender provider today in scale with a brand is at the top of that list. To be in equity is a difficult deal thing to do today. Figuring out valuation is really tough. Liquidity is tough. Being a lender is great. We can make equity-like returns with taking debt risk. We can generate probably in my career the best risk-adjusted returns that we've seen in my entire career. We're seeing huge inflows in the institutional sector, so pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and others looking to the private credit market to deploy capital for all the reasons I just mentioned. It's defensive in the sense that you have a high cash distribution and you're not taking equity risk. And so, and as I mentioned before, there's two and a half trillion dollars of debt coming due. There's $400 billion of private equity on the sideline looking to invest, but they all need debt capital. So as it relates to that sort of question you were asking, this is the best time in my career that I've seen. We just need to do a good job of aggregating more of that capital so we can provide good capital solutions to our borrowers. That's amazing. The best time in your career, which is really something that to be that well positioned. So let me ask this. It's a related question. You use the term vaporize twice in the last two minutes. And that really got my attention. The non-bank source of capital for loans has obviously exploded over the last two decades. It may have now surpassed the bank loan segment. I think I think somebody was on our, our podcast recently who said it's slightly bigger than the CRE bank loan footprint. But what is the likelihood 
that one of these vaporizations rattles the market so much that regulators have to get involved. It removes trust completely. We see another set of unintended consequences like we saw during long-term capital or during Credit Suisse or SVB over the last couple of weeks. What are your thoughts about that possibility and what it would look like? I think that's the toughest question you've asked so far, and, and I don't know the answer. The sources of our capital vary, right? From insurance company money that we invest on behalf of very large insurance companies to very well capitalized institutions, to very well capitalized high net worth individuals. The extension of the commercial real estate debt industry will extend into the non-traded sector in a greater way. So call it the retail consumer, accredited investors, but retail consumer, we will see that move and Acor will move in that direction too. But as it relates to a OCC or a regulator, I'm struggling to come up with who would have jurisdiction over what we do. We're already a registered investment advisor and all of us are in the eye of the SEC and, and rightly so. But what other regulator would there be that would need to oversee the non-bank sector? I don't have the answer to that at this point. Maybe next week, if we have a chat, I'll come up with something else. But as, at this point, I'm not sure. I do think, though, that the players in our industry are very good players. They're, this, you know, I think we all learned a lot from 2008 in terms of what to do, what not to do. Um, the Lenders have been conservative in terms of their loan-to-value ratios. By and large, the borrowers have borrowed less money. It's just the way in which some of these loans were leveraged. So these are good loans to good lenders. The issues really will arise around asset liabilities in terms of, in terms of how, in, how these loans have been leveraged. And that varies from lender to lender. But the other thing I would say is that group of folks that are going to, quote-unquote, vaporize, only constitute a very small part of that non-bank sector. It's not the meat of the industry. Yeah. Do you think if we get a reprieve from the Fed, a stabilization of, of rates, that we see some, you know, silver lining for maybe optimism in 2023? Or is this, you know, crisis and where we're at right now persist over the next 18 to 24 months or even longer? Yeah, my guess, just looking at history, is we only really feel the impacts. There's a lag. And that lag is somewhere between 12 and 24 months, the real lag, right? So the question really is, okay, even if we get some stability from the Fed, that's a very positive thing, okay? That, as we talked about, creating more liquidity in the CMBS market, the CLO market, bringing bond buyers back in, having people stop for a moment and say, I think I know what these assets are worth now. If interest rates remain within this band, we feel like we know what this means hopefully risk premiums, so the spread in loans settle down to or come in as the demand for commercial real estate credit product increases. So that will tighten the cost of capital. And that's all really positive. I, I, and I think that will have a positive impact uh, across the sector. I think, though, that this is going to take a little time. I also think that the loan sale opportunity, in other words, buying, performing loans from sellers looking for liquidity, it's probably not going to happen immediately. I know that the brokerage community has been slammed doing BOVs for lenders across the board, but not a lot has been brought up for sale so far. There are a couple of big portfolios that we expect to come to market shortly, which might be 
the catalyst to drive more loan sales and people to mark their books. But I don't know when that's going to happen. But the, the short answer is anything to do with Fed loosening monetary policy or stalling or indicating that they're not going to continue to increase rates is going to have positive reverberations through the system. Now, I know we want to spend some time on individual property types. You brought up really the third rail of commercial real estate right now, which is the office space. It seems like it has replaced retail as the topic that occupies the most attention right now. Let me give you an open floor to, to what your thoughts are about office and, and whether or not you'd be an office lender in this market. Yeah. So let's talk about it from a macro perspective. I mean, clearly all eyes are on office. So we know that. Um, I would tell you that it's extremely difficult for anybody to get an office loan today unless the office building has stable credit tenants or the office building is one of the top decile, quartile buildings within growth markets. I always use the poster child for a great success, which is one Vanderbilt. And I'm not, I don't stand alone. Many people do. Where you have a building, notwithstanding the pressures or, or the headwinds, has knocked it out of the park. They produced an incredible product, fantastic amenities, beautifully designed for the needs of a consumer today or higher end consumer, literally on a transportation hub and a place that people want to be. A good friend of mine said to me the other day, we were talking about the office industry broadly and said, you know, it's kind of funny. I would love to sit down with office designers 20 years, years ago and tape, videotape that room of them designing the ideal office space and then do it today. And they are so different, aren't they? And so the, the demand side has just changed its behavior so significantly. So we're talking about a sector that is enormous. I, I think that if you scale it, uh, the banks alone have, I think, $800 billion of office exposure alone, well over a trillion dollars of, of office out there. And if you talk to any lenders, you know, their exposure to office is somewhere between 20 and 40%. So if you were a normal, well-distributed lender, you're going to have office. So our viewpoint is that there is a lot we don't know. We are cautious. We will lend very selectively on top quality asset, top sponsor, low leverage, widespread, great credit, those kind of characteristics. If you look like a market like West Palm Beach, right? It's demonstrated incredible strength, very limited supply. We're doing a construction loan there for office right now. And we're very happy with it. But that's, that market is only one of very few. So there's very, very little liquidity available for office. I think as a sector, there's a high probability that that sector trades on an unlevered basis for a period of time while things get sorted out, particularly B-quality office in major markets, low ceiling heights, uh, you know, the quintessential mid-block, low ceiling heights uh, type of office building where rents have just dropped precipitously and expenses have continued to increase. The asset value is extremely low. There's obviously this discussion about conversions and convertibility. And I think that it's a little bit of a green shoot and maybe it's a little bit, of, little bit overly optimistic. When I speak to a number of our developer friends in New York who are eyeing the space and have been through literally every building in Manhattan, there's only a small subset of buildings in Manhattan that are eligible for conversion given their physical plant. 
The second issue is you've got this bid-ask issue between the seller and what makes sense for someone to buy it to convert it to multifamily. And so we're sort of in this place of exploration. So will Acor lend to that borrower that is buying a building in Manhattan at 150 bucks a foot for conversion to multi at eight or 900 bucks a foot? Yes, we will. We, we won't be lending to that mid-block B quality office building in, Manha in Manhattan, Los Angeles, or otherwise, where we just think the fundamentals are really poor for those office buildings. And God forbid we get to a spot where we start using the words like functional obsolescence. But I think, you know, we're a lender. Our job is to return the money to our investors and to get interest back. We're not in the business of hope and wishful thinking. We're in the business of being a fiduciary and just getting our money back. And so for us to take that kind of risk, it's asymmetrical. It's an equity risk. So if you want to be a contrarian office buyer, you're better off doing it unlevered, prove out your business thesis, and then refinance and make your money that way. Uh, I just don't think there's much, if any, liquidity for sort of a contrarian office play today, unless it is contrarian office with a reset basis in sp very specific markets. Yeah, that reset basis issue or that phrase you used, that's really what happened in the mall space, right? We saw $150 million malls fall to $25 million in value. And you saw a couple of people who were going to run those on a extraordinary low, low basis, like Namdar and Kohan come in and, and say, this is our business model. And if you buy a mall for $25 million, you can run it on a 72% occupancy and make money. Is that where office is going? Is that your, is, is that your expectation? So when we say, is that where office is going? Again, I don't want to generalize too much, but if we're talking about the assets that are going to have that kind of pressure, which we're seeing in the, in the, in the description I gave, Yes, it's going to be like that. But then the question is, at a mall, you have 10, 12 acres of land. And the adaptive reuse is, I'm going to do a multifamily development here. I can build three or four towers. I can keep a small bespoke retail center. I can put in a senior housing component or an adult daycare center. The beauty of that was you had land. In office, you have a vertical building that has very limited adaptive reuse. So some of it is truly going to fall into the category of being worthless. And some of it's going to be falling into the category of adaptive reuse for multifamily or senior living. But as a percentage of the total inventory of, let's say, underperforming office, I think that's a small percentage that can actually achieve new life. So Warren, as we wrap up the podcast today, I wanted to, to ask one last question. You know, where do you see the opportunities over the next 12 to 24 months? What, what's the optimist take on the current market scenario? So I'll, I'll uh, talk about it using the lens of commercial real estate credit. So as I mentioned, I think this is a fantastic time to be a lender because of significantly reduced liquidity across the system. So while it was a borrower's market a year ago, it's a lender's market today. So just making senior transitional loans, floating rate loans with floors is a really good business to be in, delivering high cash yields to investors with a lot of downside protection. So that's the first sector. The second sector is, is the, call it credit opportunities sector of which we have a couple of vehicles to do this, which is to provide high yield bridge 
capital to help folks get to the other side. So within the asset classes, there's clearly going to be a big opportunity in the multifamily sector where many borrowers bought high quality multifamily buildings at three or four cap rates. And now their cost of funds is 6% and they're upside down. They're not upside down necessarily on value. They started out at a 75% loan. They're at 90% today. They're going to need to refinance and they're going to need bridge mezzanine. And we're very excited about that opportunity uh, to come in and provide scale in capital in the multifamily sort of high yield sector. We uh, like the alternative asset classes like self-storage. We've done a lot in self-storage and we, we see that as a continued great space to be in. Industrial clearly has been a darling, but I'd put it in the same category as multifamily. And I think for non-banks like ourselves, historically we've done less industrial. We are gonna do more industrial now as the banks are uh, less active. So opportunity to go and, and take more market share in the sectors where they, which priced at bank pricing that was not appropriate for non-banks a year ago. So that's a great opportunity. Great opportunity in the high yield, particularly in multifamily bridge uh, orientation. Construction is the other area. We have a large construction book. We think that construction represents some of the best risk-adjusted returns in the marketplace. We always believe in great sponsors and borrowers delivering the best-in-class or top three, top four product in a market after it's been renovated or constructed. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. You need a deep bench of construction experts internally and asset management team to execute on that, which we are fortunate to have. And I think you will see us do a lot more multifamily construction, industrial construction, self-storage construction, asset classes that are defensive across the board. So I'm really very much looking forward to this from a business perspective. Job one is to protect the house, protect the assets, work with our borrowers. But out of that will come real trends that we will jump onto and, and you would see Acor at the forefront of delivering capital into the market and providing solutions uh, you know, across the industry. I'm putting together two plus two, your optimism and your insurance company funding. I just remember a year ago, there was so much talk about how insurance companies couldn't find the yield to support their future liabilities. It sounds like you're in a position, Warren, to single-handedly bail out the insurance companies from that problem going forward. Well, I, I just want to be a, a solution provider. That's great. And lastly, if uh, listeners want to reach out to you, how can they do that other than just Googling you? Shoot me an email, wdahan at acorecapital.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts and opinions. These are interesting times, and I think it's, it's a good time to debate some of these complex issues. For sure. With that, we'll close this special podcast. Thank you to our guest, Warren DeHaan from Acor Capital. Join us later this week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or comment, send your email to podcast at trip.com. Until then, visit trip.com for more info and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right. 